This episode of this podcast is making me thirsty. Is brought to you by the Clarkman Garbage Disposal. Welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty. The number one destination for Seinfeld fans. This is episode seventy-two. Today's guest is Kevin Page. Kevin played NBC executive Stu Shermack in five Seinfeld episodes. Thank you for listening. If you dig it, pass it on. Follow us on Twitter at This Thirsty. Check out our Instagram channel and our YouTube channel. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. This podcast is making me thirsty. Episode 72, Kevin Page. Welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty. The number one destination for Seinfeld fans. Today's guest is an NFT artist, an author, an actor. As an actor, you know him from RoboCop, Friday Night Lights, The Sun, Dallas, and of course, as NBC executive Stu Sharmack in five Seinfeld episodes. Please welcome Kevin Page. Kevin, thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Kevin, thanks for, for joining this podcast. It's making, us thirsty, making you thirsty. So take us back, 1992, right? You just on, finished, I'm, I'm thirsty. I, I know. <laughs> you just finished You just finished filming uh, one of my favorite shows, Hunter, in 1991 with Babu, mm-hmm. who you reunite with in the finale. But uh, fast forward a little bit to September of 92. That's when the pitch aired. Give us a little insight into the, the whole process with Seinfeld. Was there an audition? I know you played Rick Ludwin. I'd love to hear how involved he was kind of in casting. Uh, let us know. Hang on. Here, you can pause this, right? I'll show you in a second. Uh, so yeah, in uh, 1992, the casting director for Seinfeld uh, actually called me a couple of times. Uh, I had met him right after I'd done RoboCop when I was living in Dallas. And so he'd been very kind to me for a long time uh, and saw me for a number of things. So they'd actually brought me into Seinfeld maybe two or three times. I don't really recall, it was earlier. And uh, so uh, this one came up and uh, I went in and I ended up reading for uh, Jerry and uh, can't remember who was there. But anyway, the point is uh, I got hired to do this part and I really thought that was my magnificent acting talent. I mean, I just nailed that so hard. But these guys gave me that role. I mean, really, I trained. I trained at SMU. I had half a master's degree. And the brilliance of my talent at, in my own mind at the time was absolutely awesome. So we do the show. And we shoot for the year, the season, basically. It was season four. Yep. You, you yep. guys know better than me. And uh, we get to the rap party where everybody's hanging out. Larry David's there and we're having drinks and laughs. And, and, and some guy walks up to me with my very same glasses. And he looks something like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I realized that it had, sh- oh, sorry. It had nothing to do with my talent. I happen to bear a very strong <laughs> physical resemblance to Rick Ludwin, who was a very kind and, and pretty funny guy himself. So, 
So that's my uh, that's my that's how talented I am to get on Seinfeld story. <laughs> well, he he sat behind you in the pilot episode, if I recall. Yeah, I with, think he uh, did. That's right. Yeah, yeah. With with Warren Littlefield. Um, yeah. So tell us a little. So you tried out a bunch of times before, and then this right. role of Stu came about. Um, obviously, it was for the whole season, but that wasn't the, obvious at all. You try out before. Yeah. That was not obvious at all. It was just a one-off gig as far, you know, as far as I know. Oh, all right. They often don't oh, wow. you know, inform the actress what they do. So they give you your lines and, you know, it's a sitcom. So we rehearsed for a week and I got to hang out with the cast and they're really cool. And, uh, you know, and then it's like, oh, your agent calls and they want you back next week. And oh, by the way, we're going to check your availability. So it kind of, it was kind of a work in progress the, the whole time, at least from my perspective. Oh, interesting. So, so the yeah, and the first episode you're on is actually a one one hour kind of two part episode. The pitched ticket um, was that shot uh, all at once as a, as a full one hour show. Do you remember? I mean, I'm just curious because it's one of those where it's like it's an hour episode that's kind of broken up between you know the actual pitch and then and then they go in the you know the whole. Honestly, I don't. Scene. I don't actually remember because from again from the actor's perspective who who are the sort of the last to know uh, that was two separate episodes from our perspective. So I don't mm. actually recall if we filmed them in the same cycle or if it was one week, one, one week and one the next. But as far as I know, uh, I had shot two episodes, but then they did air them as, as a special, I guess. Right. And, and so one of the most legendary scenes in the show, I mean, we rank, we rank the pitch to the ticket. We rank a 22nd Ohio, I think somewhere in the top 25. Yeah. It's unbelievable. The whole. It's like, it's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Does that get me closer <laughs> to Kevin Bacon? I have Robert De Niro, so I'm only a one away, but this may be better. How, how, how much fun was shooting that whole, you know, that whole sequence there, um, you know, with, with George artistic integrity, we're not going to, uh, you know, this is the show. Um, anything you tell us about shooting that scene, maybe behind the scenes stuff, anything that kind of came up that you recall about that? Absolutely. So at the time I was working on the show, the show had uh, really, I think, sort of took off round about that season. So in fact, when I was doing the show, nobody was the super most famous comedians in the whole world kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, so my my response to it was uh, these guys are really good actors, meaning they're just, you know, very funny and very loose. And uh, Michael Richards, I remember, was very, very disciplined on the set. He, you know, he has all these crazy uh, pratfalls that he does. And the way he does that, which may look very spontaneous, is, is he rehearses right. a lot. So, you know, you'd be sitting here talking to, George and Cherry, and they'd be working on the script and over in, over in the darkened part of the, of the set in, in the Kramer set, Kramer would be coming through the door 70 times trying to figure out the exact right way to fall down. So uh, my, my interpretation of it was, and I'd done several sitcoms before, uh, not to cast any aspersions, but right. I mean, these guys are really good actors and very, very funny. And they, they worked in a real... Uh, a creative process, there was no doubt. I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes people just learn their lines and they say their lines and they say them like they think they should. And these guys, they were completely off the hook by this point in the fourth season. They were making shit up right and left. And, and you just had to play sort of like basketball. You know, somebody throws you the ball, you catch it. Right, right. It's, it's funny you mentioned that um, <clears throat> those first two episodes, they aired on Wednesday night. So you're right. The show was kind of just 
taking off. And then by the time the, you know, the version of pilot came, that's when it moved behind Cheers and kind of doubled an audience, if you will. Yeah. So you mentioned some of the chemistry. And I think you, it's weird doing this interview without Jay Crespi, right? I mean, he was your right-hand man. <laughs> Peter uh, Blood, yeah, Peter sure. Blood, yeah. So him, you, him, and Susan kind of had a, a good chemistry with, with your mm -hmm. bosses throughout. Can you touch on any any stories uh, from from those two? Well, it's it's actor stuff, man. You just sit yeah. around and try to crack each other up. That's really the job is you get paid to try to make the other people in the set laugh, and then you got to kind of calm the humor down when they turn the cameras on. Then you get back to futzing around. That's and they were funny. Uh, Peter, I think, was uh, a Chicago actor, maybe. I don't remember exactly. And of course, uh, Heidi. Yeah. Heidi, yeah. Heidi went on to you know many other great things as well, and she was terrific. And the stories that I recall that were told behind the scenes absolutely are not appropriate for a public podcast. So it was a lot of fun. <laughs> so, so you mentioned that you you didn't know that you were coming back, you know, for four episodes when you when you got the part. Um, I'm assuming the same is true then when you got the call for the finale. Now you, you know, you had, you were part of the finale, which is obviously one of the most watched shows in the history right. of television. And, and I, we're kind of big fans of the finale. Some Seinfeld fans, uh, you know, it's mixed reviews. Some are. Yeah, it. some are. Yeah. We love it. Um, what can you tell us about shooting the finale? I'm sure that was a, a pretty, a pretty cool experience, you know, being there with everyone coming back and, and all that kind of stuff and the secrecy behind it and everything. Right. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, wildly different from the first season for me personally. Uh, because by the time the finale came up, which was five years-ish since we had shot the, the first season that I was in, mm -hmm. uh, I had essentially left Hollywood, uh, moved back to Texas. I had gotten a Series 7 and had become a stockbroker. Oh, wow. And I think I'd probably put on about 20 pounds, too. And so uh, somehow they tracked me down <laughs> and they figured out where I was because I still had relationships with my agents in, in Dallas, but uh, you know, it wasn't working other than you know, hawking, trying to sell IBM or some such thing. And so we got this call and uh, I just started this job at this big Wall Street firm. And hair was cut and I was wearing suits every day because that was just the thing you did back then. And, and I got this call and said, hey, they want to bring you back for the finale of the show. And now, now the truth was unknown. You know, Seinfeld was the biggest sitcom in the entire freaking world right and, and it was it was like a phenomenon it was very weird trying to get into this trying to get onto the sounds you know the studio lot you had people hanging out with signs it was crazy so i had to go and ask my boss he was a fairly new boss i said look uh because you have to you know you're when you're a, a stockbroker you're supervised and they have to know what you're doing so that you're not doing anything to violate security laws and i said look uh can I get a couple of days off and go shoot this uh, TV show I was on? And I don't think he knew what it was. He right. was a pretty conservative guy. And, and I'm like, I think it might be good for my stock business. You know, people see me on TV. So I talked him into it, but he almost said no. Uh, oh, wow. And I'm glad that he didn't because, uh, because yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. <laughs> so they, had no, they had no idea that that was your, your previous, you know, life. When you got the stock broker, like they had no idea that that was your previous life an actor. Oh, I'm sure I promoted the hell out of it. Yeah, right, I probably right, okay, talked yeah. me to give me the job because I was <laughs> a little famous. But right, uh, right. but anyway, that's probably not of any interest to anybody. You get no, me talking, no, I go boring really fast. <laughs>
No, 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 no. I love it. I mean, this is your, I mean, it looks like, I mean, just from, you know, the artwork behind you, I know you're an NFT artist now. Um, you know, it sounds like you kind of just wherever it takes you, that's where you're going at the time, you know, curious when, when, when did you get into NFTs? When, when did it start? I mean, I heard about them almost two years ago from my buddy right. who's actually an NFT artist now. And he was telling me about this two years ago and I, hardly anyone had ever heard of it at that point. Now it's sort of a bit of a boom going on, but I'm just curious how you, how you got into that, uh, that field well actually uh it's a long and sordid tale i'll try to make it short uh i was about 10 years ago i uh, was starring on a tv series called dallas which was a reboot of a of an american television series from way 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 back uh and they and they did something unique with this particular show they actually brought back the original cast members so larry hagman and and linda gray and all these fabulous uh, you know nighttime soap actor uh, uh, actors from the 70s were there. And I ended up being the guy who killed J.R. Ewing. Uh, so that's like a Jeopardy question, for real. I've who seen shot J.R.? Yeah. I shot, I killed J.R. <laughs> and uh, at the time I, I had, uh, I had a small art gallery. And so the two were kind of combined. Uh, and the story is I got involved with a scientist who, uh, whose day job was to place molecules in very specific locations on a silicone wafer using what was called nanotechnology got it. and he somehow got interested in artists and a, and a form of art called pointillism which is the application of really tiny little dots of color like thousands of them a, a french guy in the 1800s came up with this and did this by hand and it almost killed him because it's physically so challenging so i worked with this guy and we got four patents on a giant robot that actually places dots of oil paint, just like a pointless painter. And, and effectively, it's, a, it's an electronic paintbrush. And so that painting behind me has 335,000 individual strokes of hand-mixed oil paint, all placed very carefully by my robotic system. Wow. Uh, and so if you didn't see the robot, eh, you know, it may not even be out there anymore. Anyway. Uh, the point is I had been sort of in the traditional art world as one of the world's only living pointillists at the time, because believe me, if you try to do that by hand, yeah, you'll still be doing that 10 years from now. When are we you programming the robot to make the dots? Or What's that? Are, are you programming the robot oh. to make the dots? Well, there's a whole them? system that we hold the patents on about how okay. we get the color data essentially into our proprietary software platform. Now, this really is getting got I had an art gallery. I'm interested, but we'll, uh, yeah, it's cool. Ahead. You can look at it some other time. But yeah, I had an art gallery as uh, as a pointless oil painter and these really big, you know, giant paintings and stuff. And so uh, in about 2016, I closed that business. I started doing some writing. I finished a master's degree in psychology kind of left the art world behind. I was doing really well as an actor. Not too long ago, I had agents in Atlanta and I had agents in Texas and I was doing two or three auditions a week. And then this little thing called a pandemic came along yeah. and kind of shut that shit down cold. And as a matter of fact, it's just starting to come back now, uh, at least in the markets I work in. And so as a result, I uh, essentially lost my job as a result of the pandemic and I kind of got back interested in art. And so at the time that I found out about NFTs, which was basically around you know, Christmas of last year. So I'm an old timer. I've been in Mobile for maybe eight months. Uh, I sort of, uh, you know, that sort of affected my interest in the combination of technology and art. 
which is exactly what the robotics thing was about, but it was in, you know, it was online. So I very quickly uh, tripped to the idea of what NFTs were about. And I did, I, I think I did the smart thing, which was then I lurked for about five months mm. and I worked on my skills and I listened and I, I looked at thousands of pieces of art every day till I kind of felt like I had an understanding of what the space was about. And I'm super lucky, uh, I guess, just because I've been an artist in one form or another my whole life. But uh, uh, in this particular space, you know, the vibe is not your traditional oil painting vibe. You know, it's a, right, it's a vibe right. that's very uh, influenced by video games and comic books and, and kind of a wry postmodern sense of humor. And the thing is, I've been playing video games since Pong in an unbroken streak for 40 years. <laughs> so I get it. I mean, I get the vibe, man. So I'm very excited about it. I, I, I have two auctions going right now uh, on, on various platforms. And um, I'm on the uh, Rarible platform. I'm on yeah. Foundation. And I really hope to be on Super Rare pretty soon. And I'm selling this crazy art. Uh, and if I can get enough followers, I have some ideas for some, some kind of strange... Uh, you know, maybe something yeah. to do. There we something go. to do with RoboCop. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, like I, I mean, thought and about, I, and this is just a thought experiment, but I thought about, you know, they put out a, that's actually a very, let me show you this a little better. This is actually a very collectible Mr. Yeah, yeah. Kenny versus Ed 209 collectible set. As you can see right there, there I am. Huh. And uh, there's only a, a few hundred of these made. And so I had thought about having a Mr. Kinney's Revenge NFT where I get like a hammer and some lighter fluid, maybe a shotgun, <laughs> take out an Ed 209 so that Mr. Kinney has his, has his day and do that as an NFT. But uh, I dig it. I got to sell some more art first. So yeah. anyway, that, that's awesome, the whole man. NFT thing. Well, like a, a common cool. theme you just brought up. I mean, uh, buys a lot of art within Seinfeld to bring us back to uh, to the show. Um, so take us back. I mean, you were in five episodes. I know the pilot was pretty special. It, it kind of brought you back into the fold. What of the what of the episodes were your favorite? Um, the pitch, the ticket, the virgin, the pilot, or the finale? Which did you have the most fun on? Well, to me, it was all fun because you're you know when you're an actor living in Hollywood, work is believe me, work is the fun part. Um, honestly, I guess I can't be fired off a show that quit shooting 30 years ago. So I'll tell you the truth. And this, and yeah. this is not unusual for actors. I hadn't watched the show much. Uh -huh. I was an actor in Hollywood. I didn't have time to sit down and watch sitcoms at eight o'clock at night. I was either in acting classes or out auditioning or working out or training or, mm. or performing, you know, doing something. And so it was not until... 10 years ago that we got the box set of the DVDs and started on episode one. And you know, that's a pretty funny show. <laughs> it's actually very funny, still holds up. And so we're rewatching it now with my teenage daughter. She's about ready to go off to college uh, film school at USC. And, and so oh, nice. we're going through the Seinfeld series as a sort of part of classic uh, television history. Uh, anyway, so to, to not really answer your question, uh, I have so many, and most of them were not ones I was in because it was just so damn funny. Yeah, well, see, uh, you know, an episode we love is is the pilot, and I think it's it's unique. The audition scene, you were fantastic in that. Um, yeah, Larry yeah. Hankin, Jeremy Piven, 
Mariska, Mariska Hargitay was the only one who portrayed Elaine. I'm curious, were there any, <clears throat> did they shoot any more of those that we missed that they didn't show as far as people trying out or anything silly that happened on set? Yeah, so, I mean, you obviously, since you talk to people about this all the time, you know how they shoot a three-camera sitcom, mm -hmm. which is basically like a play in three acts. And so each act, they had three cameras going at once, and they'll intercut between that, usually live, but, but they can fix it in post if it's not broadcast live, and it never is. So, frankly, uh, as I recall, and I mean, I don't didn't know the editors, so I don't know directly, but as I recall, they had more material than they could use. And, and they and and, you know, there was some pain on the editing floor for some actors, I guess. Uh, so I don't know. Probably. <laughs> I mean, but listen, those by that point, you know, those were those were some of the best comic actors in Hollywood. They were able to attract to that. Right. So, you know, yeah, I'm sure they had a lot of gold they left behind. Sad, but true. Maybe it'll come out as an NFT someday. <laughs> I believe that scene starts with the, uh, you're sort of finishing a story about the parakeet and the mirror. Does this ring a bell for you? Do you know, was that in the script, just like those three words, where they just let you kind of have this, like, just kind of part of a story? Were you telling more of a story? Do you remember that? You're just like. Oh, that was definitely scripted. Yeah, just like those three words. Yeah, when you're like, a visiting actor on somebody yeah. else's show, you got to be a little. And, and, oh, and oh, by the way, the, the star of the show writes the show. You want to be. Right, right. You may bring in an idea, but you're careful about which ones you really try to, you know, ask for. So you, it's better if you can figure out how to make it funny the way they saw it, I think. Right, right. Although I'm, I'm, I'm infamous for improving myself as well. And, and, and by the way, they were open to that. Yeah. If you said something funny. There was no, you know, they didn't have any ego about this shit. They wanted to make a good show, and, and I think they did. Right. And, and you, so that's a good question. So you're, we, we understand, you know, you're playing the NBC executive. Just the initial, when you go up to Jerry in the, in the comedy club, then when you're in the meetings, you have this sort of like executive suit personality that you hear about when you hear, especially someone like Jerry talking in interviews about talking to the suits is like, they're laughing at things that probably aren't funny. They don't really get the joke, you know, like they're, you had that down to a T. I mean, was that just from being in those rooms or, I mean, did you, where was that like inspiration for that sort of like, you know, straight edge, like exact trying to be hip with the comedian in the room kind of thing, you know, it's really, you really nailed it. Well, this is another little dirty secret from my past. You guys are going to get me in all kinds of trouble. Um, Prior to moving to Hollywood, I, I started my career as an actor in, in Texas. And that was where I shot RoboCop. That was sort of where I got that break. And the way uh, non-famous actors make a living usually is to do what are either called industrial films or commercials. And so, uh, and, and I was a pretty average looking guy. I was never a great beauty, but I did look a lot like the kid right down the street, kind of that you know, everybody's brother or something. Right. And you can tell, right? And so uh, I had done a shit ton of commercial work and literally what's called industrial spokesman, where I would put on a suit and tie and I'd be reading a teleprompter. And I might say something like, when you have a new insurance policy with GPM, then you're going to find that you have great coverage. Now, walk this way and we'll explain this to you. So I had done this <laughs> spokesman weird ass corporate shit like <laughs> my whole acting life. And it was a big secret. You don't tell people in Hollywood that you did that because they'll go, oh, right. right? 
Uh, and so I, I think that probably uh, I had some practice with the suits because I'd had some practice with the suits. So speaking, of, so speaking of the suits, like I know you were based on Rick Ludd when we talked about him and you had the picture at the party. Was that the first time you met him at the post party or was, was he involved? Um, no, I think it was. Yeah. Now he may have been in, I don't think he was in casting because he was just, you know, uh, I think I met him at the rap party for the end of season four. And this dude comes walking up to me. He's kind of grinning. And I, he said something to the effect of, you know, do you know who I am or something? And so that was when I had this horrifying moment of realizing that, that I just looked like the guy. Right. And we should tell I the thought audience. I was so talented. <laughs> we should tell the audience who he is, too. I mean, most of our fans should know. But oh, yeah, he was yeah, the guy yeah. behind, really behind making Seinfeld stay on the air. I mean, you know, he was the exact Well, he was actually of, the guy that, that brought the David brought, Letterman yeah. show on TV. And so he Letterman, was a late yeah. night executive. Yeah. And he didn't really have, as far as I know, he didn't have much business fooling around with the primetime sitcom arena. But he met Jerry and that and that part of the story, that part of the tale, apparently is fairly historically you know, correct. Yeah. He approached him at a comedy club and said, Hey man, you want to do a show? And the, the really nice of, guy, by the way. Ah, uh, hell guy. Stu, and Stu, right, you, Stu, who you played, had three bosses, right? You had Russell Dalrymple. <laughs> you had <laughs> Rita Kearson, who was tough as nails. Oh, yeah. And then you came back with James Kimbrough. So a nice little run. You and, um, um, you and Jay Crespi had a good run there with three different bosses. Well, you know that uh, that we actually were cross-cloned at some point in like season seven or eight, maybe six. Ah, I beat you. Wait, wait, what did you mean cross-cloned? So, so apparently <laughs> while I was off being a stockbroker, <laughs> they aired mind. an episode where they very briefly, it may have only been a phone call or some guy just came in oh. and they said, hi, this is... Oh, Jay Crespi yes. and Stu. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. And so uh, that, that was when they couldn't find my agent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, Kevin, so, some of the lines you had, I don't know if you remember all of them, but I mean, everything from, you know, can we see the script of La Cucina? Like just from uh, the fall lineup, it's a bear. Like, what did you, I mean, you just, you played an executive so well. It's, it's funny. That's why I keep asking if, if Rick Ludwig was involved, but it sounds like um, clearly you're a great actor, but I mean, how involved, obviously. I mean, obviously, <laughs> but like Larry and, and Tom Sharonis, like how hands-on were these guys during, during the shooting? Do you remember? Well, Tom directed, I think Tom directed every damn episode of the series. Except, except two in the first five seasons. Yeah. So he was about as hands-on as you can get. He was the director. Right. Uh, uh, Honestly, I think that, uh, well, you again would know the history better than myself. I know that uh, Larry had left the show somewhere around there, and I don't remember whether he was even on the show he that left, whole. He, did yeah, he, he leave before the fourth season? No. No, Larry left seven, after eight. Seven, after after seven, seven. So oh, eight, okay. nine, came back for the So final. he came back to do the final episode. That's, yeah. that's the one part I remember. What are you asking old actors shit? <laughs> And like, you know, when Michael Richards comes in, you, you know, you say, oh, I remember you from the Calvin Klein ads. I mean, you just you had a, a, a pretty strong uh, presence on the show. But you mentioned you were kind of they they told you later. So all these were filmed in order. So you didn't film the the last two until 
you know, no, it was far. It was, there was a, uh, I believe it was probably a seven day schedule, maybe five. I can't remember what the five to seven shooting days for each half an hour sequence. And then you, you'd rehearse it uh, on, you know, and then then get it up on its feet and do it on the set. And then, you know, you'd have an audience come in and you'd shoot it and usually do it twice. Normally, I think. Are you getting, um, are you getting more, what do you say you get more recognized for Seinfeld or RoboCop? I mean, RoboCop has a huge sort of cult following as well, but it's a little bit further back, I guess, I guess with Seinfeld on reruns and things. I mean, you don't look like Stu Charmack so much anymore, maybe, but I'm sure you still get it. Right. <laughs> oh, we put the glasses on. There yeah, there we go. Perfect. There it is. Uh, <laughs> honestly, I think I'm more famous for RoboCop. Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, uh, the fans on Seinfeld, there's actually more of them, and, and they do know who I am if I, if I tell them. But, but the people from RoboCop, what's so weird about RoboCop was, may I tell a RoboCop story? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. By all means. Uh, so Paul Verhoeven was this Dutch director, and he had a real uh, artistic sensibility. And so uh, his vision for RoboCop was to really use that to make some serious social commentary from his perspective. And one of the things he was really taking an aim at was corporate excess and greed and all of these things that were themes at that time. And, and also the violence in movies. Mm. So his intention was to take the violence, particularly like in the little scene where they blow up Mr. Kinney at the beginning uh, and exaggerate it to the point of the absurd. So it essentially becomes comedy as a way to bring people's attention to how ridiculous, I think, I think, oh, sorry. I think he felt that the violence in movies was, was at that time. Mm. And ironically, he did such a damn good job of it that the film itself was rated X 24 times at the rating board until finally cut out three seconds of Peter Weller's death and three seconds of mine. And oh, that's wow. what got it an R rating. Uh, and it became like, the film that opened so many young filmmakers' my, uh, eyes to really violent movies. So weirdly enough, he was making this social commentary, but he did it so well, it almost, it almost sort of increased it or became a, I mean, you know, because the violence was intentionally absurd. Right. Uh, but it played so well. That people, and so my point is, I think I may be more famous for RoboCop because so many uh, generations of filmmakers would see this flipping movie when they were eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, completely inappropriate. It's right. a hard R, but everybody watched it. And so now all of these filmmakers that, you know, grew up and saw this film at eight or nine years old, they, they, they remember me. It's iconic. Yeah. That's it. So Kevin, we'll, we'll wrap with this. Uh, what can you tell us about the season four rap party? Any good stories? Who'd you bump into? What can you tell us? I was actually going to do a little thing, but I, I got behind uh, and I wasn't able to look it up. The rap party for season four. Have you anybody else told this story yet? Uh, no, we had Larry of, Hankin oh. on, but he didn't tell us. Uh, I don't think we got anything out of him about the rap party. It was a bowling party. Oh, interesting. Jerry rented out an entire bowling alley somewhere over in the valley uh, and took the whole thing, cast and crew, everything. Free booze, free food, fabulous. And we bowled. And in our little gift bags, there was a bottle of Eternity for Men. 
cologne. It was a cologne that was very popular at the time, real kind of fruity thing. And I still to this day, because I, really I don't really wear cologne. Uh, so I just sort of kept it. And then as the legend of the thing grew over decades, I sort of like, wow, this is my collectible from the season four bowling rap party for Seinfeld. You got to make it into an NFT. It's like a, it's like a collectible right there. Yeah, again, I got to get a little more famous for the art piece, but <laughs> I have my eye on it. I'm thinking maybe uh, an NFT about nothing. <laughs> and the eternity's a Calvin Klein. Uh, is that a Calvin Klein uh, fragrance? Bringing it back to Kramer, the Calvin Klein model. Sounds like it is. I have no <laughs> idea. I don't think <laughs> I don't so. Worry. I think it was more of a, a lower end, just sort of uh, like Walmart thing, but I, I don't right. really recall. Well, hey, uh, thanks so much for letting Thank me you, uh, Kevin. tell my stories and stuff. I appreciate it. No, this was awesome, man. Thanks, where, Kevin. Where, where, where is your NFT art again? Rarible? Is it on OpenSea? Uh, I'm, mostly it's on Foundation. Oh, Foundation. Okay, cool. And then there's a couple of other sort of larger platforms that, uh, getting, that I'm talking any, to, but we haven't settled it yet. Got it. Anything in the acting world? You, you dipping your toes back in there now that the pandemic's off or no? Uh, I literally have an audition for a series in about two hours. Okay, cool. Yeah, and so like the first one in in almost almost two years. Oh, wow. I get some voice auditions because you know they kind of still do, and and it's starting to pick up. But cool. But you know, I'm I'm really man. I'm serious. I'm doing this art full time. I'm really having a good time. That's these, awesome. these younger collectors and artists are so generous. You know, it's very, very different from the from being an actor in Hollywood in the '90s. You know. <laughs> People nice. It's weird. Well, best All of right, luck. guys. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Kevin. Awesome. Cool. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. All right. Later.